Well, hey, my name is Keith Weezer. It is a honor to be with you guys here. I am from Washington State, so a long ways away. Uh, I pastor a church called Resonate, and so Resonate is uh, really a collection of churches that are scattered across college campuses up in the Pacific Northwest, and so uh, it is great to be with you today. Oftentimes, uh, you know, the people I preach to are 18 to 22, and so I feel much more normal in this context. So I just thank you for being you. Uh, I appreciate that. And, uh, and I just want to say that there's some really cool things going on. As I get to be in the Pacific Northwest working among college students, it's like I get to be working in the future. And I just want to say, man, there's some really amazing things that are happening as we look to really the church that your, your kids, your, your grandkids, as we think about what the future the church looks like, um, it, it's going to look different and there's going to be different things in there, but, but God is still moving among the next generation. God is doing stuff to ignite the next generation to be able to have passion for his, his word, the, the gospel, and being able to extend that um, to the next generation. So, uh, so I get to be here with you, and uh, I'm really excited. I got to speak to college students uh, all this weekend, and, uh, and getting to be here is uh, really just the icing on the cake in that. And really, as I talk about um, to the college students, I think there's some stuff that's helpful for us as well as we think about really... Um, where we're at right now and, and how we are living our lives, one of the things that is really clear is the last couple of years have been really challenging for, for almost everyone. As we look through really a, a lens uh, of like the research that people do to be able to say, how are people doing? Earlier this year, um, Gallup put out um, the emotional report of the world. <laughs> so I don't know how they do that, um, how everybody's feeling across the world, but they figured out how to put that into a piece of data and essentially we're all just sadder is what it came up with like there is an increase in um in the amount of unhappiness that there is in the world and it might be like that makes a whole lot of sense um thinking about coming out of a global pandemic and all of that stuff but this this reality was fascinating because they've been tracking this for so long and as we think about as it came out earlier in this year and and think about over the last 20 years, as, as our world has arguably gotten um, better in so many ways and, and in economic realities and, and so many of these things that we would say, hey, these are the indicators of actually the world getting better. What we begin to see is there's a, a, a significant trend towards people saying, hey, there's a dissatisfaction that I have in my life. And as we think about really where does that come from, there's, there's something that is beginning to emerge and, uh, and as I work with, with college students, as I work with oftentimes people that are in the younger generation, uh, there is a, there's something happening in this next generation that is really significant and, and alarming. There is a significant trend towards, um, towards anxiety, towards mental health issues, and, and now it's beyond that as well. But, but we have to say, okay, what, what's, what's going on in this way? And as we begin to see some of this research coming out of this, what we're seeing is this, this sense that um, there is a more significant amount of comparison that everyone is doing to the people around them. In fact, I would say that the most significant threat to our happiness, the most significant threat, threat to our, uh, our, our sense of being able to say, hey, I'm satisfied with life, comes from this idea of calibration. What are we calibrating our lives to? Now, when we think about calibration, really calibration is simply just setting a standard. 
Being able to say, this is what we're aligning to, right? So we, we calibrate all kinds of things to make sure that they're accurate. So whatever you align to, whatever standard you set, ultimately allows you to be able to have the output. And if you change what you calibrate to, it changes the output. Now I think about um, a, a moment of calibration that I had. Um, I'm, I'm six foot tall, I, uh, not, not a great specimen of you know, physicality. In fact, I remember someone once told me, he said, Keith, you have, the, you have the physique of a golfer. And uh, I was like, a physique of a golfer? Uh, that's about the most um, subtle backhanded jab I could have, right? Um, and so if you're a golfer, hey, I'm sorry. But, uh, but it's like that, that thing, it's like, um, or like a curler, that sport, like, you have a phys- like things that seems like they demand no physical activity. And so that's kind of my, my job in life. Um, but I remember going to, uh, I went to China, and uh, I remember hanging out with college students in China, and they're like, let's play basketball. And I was like, okay, let's go play basketball. And then one of the greatest moments in my sports career happened when I walked on that court and I was taller than everybody else. <laughs> I got there and I was like, let's go. And, uh, and so it was just, it was the greatest moment. I was like, this is how tall people feel. Like, this is how it looks like to be able to dominate. And so I'm there getting boards and uh, keeping my own stats in my head. And, uh, and I just was like, this is this, this crazy thing. Why was this? Did I change at all? No, I was the same mediocre basketball player that I've been my entire life. There was just a different calibration in the competition, right? I had an advantage there. I think about, I grew up in Houston. Houston is one of the ugliest cities in the world, and uh, it's, it's, it's not fun to live with. It's like living inside your mouth. It's like hot and humid, right? And so um, about 20 years ago, the Lord called me from that up to the Pacific Northwest, where it is is beautiful. I mean, I'll just tell you, this is one of the most amazing places. I live uh, an hour away from blue ribbon trout streams to be able to, to fish and to go skiing. Like, this is from a kid from Houston. This is like amazing. I didn't see snow until I was 20. And so this is like this moment. So here I am, and my kids have all been raised up in this area. And sometimes I'll be driving along, and it'll be like mountains, and there's snow, and I'll be like, kids, look out your window. This is incredible. This is, look at, this is amazing. And my kids are like, yeah, dad, same as it was last week. It was my, you know, I'm getting, my kids are getting a little older and like, those mountains have been there for a while, dad. And so uh, I'm like, go back to your video games, you know, whatever. Um, but there's a sense of like, for me, that is incredible. That's beautiful. That's amazing. For my kids, they're calibrated to be able to say, that's just normal. And for us, as we begin to think about what are we calibrated to, this is something that I think we have to ask ourselves. Um, what is it that our lives are being calibrated to? Now, what's helpful is that in Scripture, what we have is a place where, as we're thinking about what does it mean to be the church, what does it mean to follow Jesus, and how easy is it for us to be able to deviate from that, to allow what we see in the world, to be able to see um, our social media feed, to be able to see uh, the people around us, to be, able to, to, to be able to say, okay, what am I calibrated to? When I think about what the good life is, what do I think in my head? 
when, when there's something that begins to define, hey, what is it that I'm thinking, hey, this is the kind of life I want to live? And, and throughout the last couple of years, many of us have been asking that about our job. Many have been asking about this in the place that we live with, with the friends that we have. We've been asking, is this really the good life? And to that, what we get is the same thing that's been given to the church for 2,000 years. We get a place in Scripture to help us calibrate. And that place is Hebrews 11. And the book of Hebrews is written to the church to help us understand how are we to live out this way of the church. And in Hebrews 11, we begin to have this whole section that begins to help us understand how we are to live our life. And as we think about what this looks like, we begin to find something. that We, be, we, be, we find this calibration not only aligns us to Christ, but aligns us into a place that gives us the maximum amount of satisfaction. So I want to go here. In verse 1 of chapter Hebrews, uh, chapter 11 of verse uh, 1 of Hebrews, what we begin to see is that famous kind of definition of faith. We, we see this. It says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And this is this, this really cool like understanding of how we are to see our trajectory. It says this, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. If we were to take this another way, we were to use the word expectation. So our, our faith is some sort of an expectation that we have. Now, if we think about the kind of faith that we have and we begin to apply that into real life, what we begin to see is that oftentimes, if we take that expectation that we might have in any part of our life and we were to apply that into the situation, really, if they are exactly the same, or our situation is better, man, that is the place where we begin to find that joy. But if our expectation is here and our situation is here, that gap, however far that gap is, kind of translates into how much difficulty we might have in finding satisfaction. We might begin to say, that's the sadness gap, right? That's the thing that we thought we wanted this or we thought we had this and we ended up with this. And that's that disappointing area. For us, as we think about um, those things, uh, I mean, yesterday, uh, my Washington State University Cougs played Oregon, University of Oregon, our, our hated rivals. And, um, and for most of the game, it looked like what WSU was going to win. Um, and then at the very end, they didn't. But the cool thing about that is I did not expect WSU to win. I wanted them to win. I'm a Coug, like, but I did not expect them to win. And that's what it is to live the life as a Washington State football fan. <laughs> We do not expect to win. And so what happens is there's a lot of happy people in Pullman, Washington. There's a lot of people that are like, we go, and if we win, well, that's a bonus. It's difficult being from Georgia, isn't it, right? Your standards are a little higher. So um, in that, what happens here is there's a calibration, right? And that calibration ends up in a place where it brings joy. And so here's what happens. The writer of Hebrews walks through and says, here's what happens. Expectation and situation, right? How do you balance that out? And then he begins to walk through all these people and he begins to reveal, hey, here's what it looked like. How do we calibrate our lives? And it gets down to verse 32. In verse 32, I want to pick up there. It says this, and what more shall I say? He's going through all this list, right? He's going through all these people and how they calibrated their lives in faithfulness to Jesus. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, of Samuel, and the prophets, 
who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. This is this incredible thing. Here was our expectation, and here was a situation. Wow, God came through in an incredible way. This is this amazing moment where he's describing what faith did in these moments that are famous in our, in our history. But then it makes a turn. <laughs> so we, we begin to see the rest of this. It says this, some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And you're like, hold it. What just happened here? We went from like, this is incredible to be sawn in two. Like, this doesn't matter. It feels like you're watching those, those drug commercials where you're like, this is a miracle drug. And then at the very end, it's like all the side effects. You're like, this might kill you. Like, w- which one? Which one is happening here? Either this drug is what you say or like, we might, you know, get messed up by it by taking this. This is this moment where as we begin to think about how we see Jesus, oftentimes we see Jesus in that first part Here's our expectation, and if we just have Jesus, it's going to exceed that. And then we have this other piece that's like, hey, we had Jesus, and then it comes down here, and it's like, what happened? In fact, in verse 39, it says those, this and these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. And so here's the thing. There's a lot of people in our generation that are deconstructing their faith because they're like, hey, I thought Jesus was going to provide this, and here's what it ended up looking like. But the problem is this, what we're doing is we're calibrating to something else. We're calibrating to this idea that the intent of Jesus is to make our life comfortable. But when we actually calibrate to Jesus, the pathway forward in Jesus is to actually transform us into his image. And this, this is the life that we want. This is what this is all about. When we begin to think about Jesus as this, this is the calibration of Hebrews 11 to be able to say, guys, we have to understand what this is about. So he goes on. And this is that famous kind of part in Hebrews chapter 12. We have all of 11 to be able to say, this is what we're looking for. This is what faithfulness looks like. So therefore, it says this in verse 1 of chapter 12, we, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses that calibrate our lives, right? Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us. Here's the key phrase, looking to Jesus, the founder and the protector of our faith, who for the joy was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame and seated on the right hand of the throne of God. This is this core understanding. As we go through the calibration phase, then we begin to say, how do we live our life? We calibrate not to the world around us. We're calibrating to Jesus. When we think about what we expect out of life and how we find our joy in life, what we do is we calibrate to the one who is for the joy set before him going to the cross. And as we think about what Jesus does, what Jesus promises is that you're not going to be the same. That he's going to transform you. 
that his grace is going to touch, touch the broken places in our lives, that there's going to be these things that get transformed if we submit them and open our hands and say, Jesus, take this. This is what he does over and over and over. And in places across the world where the church is growing, it's budding, this is what is happening. There's a calibration that says, I'm no longer looking at the world around me to be able to define what is the good life. I'm looking to Jesus. I think about... Um, in 1975, a young lady named Vera Brandes in Germany, in, in Cologne, Germany, decides that she wants to do something audacious. She wants to have the largest jazz piano concert that Germany has ever had. So she invites, over from America, the greatest jazz pianist of that time, and his guy named Keith Jarrett. So Vera... 17 years old, people around her are like, this, what a dream that this young lady has to be able to pull off something like this. And so she invites, he says yes um, to this, and uh, the, all the details are set. And the day arrives um, where this, this concert in the, in the Cologne Opera House um, happens. And, and the day arrives, and everything is being prepared for this. And then one massive issue begins to reveal itself. And that massive issue is that Keith Jarrett, the world-famous jazz piano, is a perfectionist, and he wants a specific kind of piano. Now, months before, he made that clear that he wanted this specific kind of piano, but somehow that piano did not arrive to the Golden Opera, Opera House. Instead, there they have this practice piano and that's all that's available now outside it's raining they don't have time by the time he gets there to be able to find another piano to tune that piano and to be able to get it into the opera house and so they bring out this piano it's not a grand piano in fact as they describe it it is it is like half of piano and it is it is out of tune in the low region it is out of tune in the top in fact, some of the pads are worn down. This thing is just about the most, uh, just the worst option that you could have. And so they bring it out. And Keith Jarrett is there, and he goes out, and he begins to take and just figure out if it's going to work. And he starts playing on this, and, the, and it's out of tune. And there's only parts of it that, that, that work. And he just says, I'm so sorry. This thing can't work. So he takes and he goes back to his car with his manager and, uh, and they're about to go back to the hotel to be able to fly back. And Vera comes out and she knocks on his window of his car and he rolls down the window and she pleads with him. And here it is, it's raining outside. And Keith Jarrett looks at this 17-year-old Vera in the rain, who's pleading with him just to be able to play the concert. And he says, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it because you are relentless. And so he decides to play that concert that night. The concert is on. The people fill the room. And Keith Jarrett um, goes to the piano, and his manager decides that they're going to mic this piano. So essentially what they're trying to say is that, uh, 
This is what happens when you don't give Keith Jarrett the right equipment. This is the cautionary tale to tell every other concert venue you have to get the piano right. And so what happens is that Keith Jarrett begins the concert. And at the beginning of this, he's trying to, he's trying to experiment with, with what he has there. And as he begins this process, that night something magical happens. That night, Keith Jarrett plays the most significant concert of his life. Something that is, is known in, in this is just a brilliant performance. In fact, the Cone concert, you can listen to it, it has become the best-selling jazz piano album of all time. This is what's crazy about this. He takes something where there's this issue, there's this thing that's constricted, and what happens in this is it pulls out of Keith Jarrett a whole nother masterpiece that he may not have known existed. Because of that, because of all those things that constricted him, ultimately something came out of that was, that was better than if it had gone exactly to plan. I think about this. We look at what Jesus does. The goal of Jesus is to transform us. And through this, what he does is he uses this word, endure, that he might endure the cross. He talks about let us run the race with endurance because here's what's happening. What Jesus is doing in us is not providing, saying this is just what is comfortable, but he brings us into places that allow us to experience reliance upon him that we might be transformed. It's almost the same thing as what happens with Keith Jarrett and being able to say this scenario might not have been the ideal scenario, but this is the scenario that a masterpiece emerged out of. We might have had difficult times over the last couple of years. You might be in a difficult moment right now. I want you to know that more than just being able to say, how do you get comfortable? Jesus is forming us. Jesus is creating these things that ultimately bring out our necessity for him. Over and over, here's what we begin to ask of us. Not that we win the race, but we endure this. As people who are moving towards transformation, our goal is to be able to stay in it, to be able to keep going in this. And this is what Jesus is doing over and over. Because here's the opposite. If it is just about our comfort, what we do is we get stuck in this cul-de-sac. We get stuck in this place. In fact, um, sociologists, psychologists call it um, hedonic adaptation. When everything around our lives is oriented to fulfilling our desires, what happens is this. We begin to have our desires filled, and that begins to be in this place where it's not enough. We kind of get on this treadmill where we need more and more and more and more. And you've probably experienced this. You've probably experienced parts in your life where you begin to say, hey, I want to, I want to aim towards this. I want to get this. And you get it. And it's just not quite as satisfying as you thought. Or over time, this thing that once was like so exciting for you, so satisfying, becomes 
something that is less and less satisfying. When we begin to calibrate our lives to Christ, who knows us, who created us, who knows ultimately what makes us so satisfied, it is actually his gift to us that he puts us into places that cause us to grow. As I work with with college students, one of the things that we do is to try to figure out how to put them into places that force them into growth areas. We talk about these moments that we call crucible moments. And a crucible is that thing that gets heated up and it reveals the impurities. Because this is how we grow. And as we begin to see this thing, there's these, these moments in our lives that as we begin to calibrate to Christ, they put us into places that are ultimately these crucibles and they change our lives. I think about my friend Chris. Chris Routon um, was a student at Washington State University. And Chris Routon had a remarkable offer. Chris Routon, one of his friend's dad said, hey Chris, if you will go to uh, school and uh, become an engineer, after college, I'll pay for your entire college education. And so Chris began to, he went to Washington State University, entered into the engineering program, and was incredibly talented at it. In fact, Chris won a national competition um, by being able to create this, uh, this way by which you could build homes with foam and be able to take that into third world countries to be able to allow um, houses to be built, able to build cheaply. And he won this, this, this prize in this. And this idea was being pursued. It was potentially a, a million dollar idea. And Chris had this moment where he began to say, this makes sense to the world. This makes sense to, to what everybody's telling me. Have your education paid for allow you to pursue this idea that might make you millions. But on the way to this, Chris began to ask, is this what it means to follow Jesus? Is this what Jesus is calling me to? And he began to recognize as he calibrated to Jesus that it actually he was being called to be a pastor. And so Chris goes to his friend's dad and said, hey, I feel like God's calling me to be a pastor. And his friend's dad said, okay, I understand. I can figure out a way for you to pay for college. And today, Chris invested into the lives of college students, planted a church, and is paying off his college loans. And if you're to ask Chris, do you regret that? Say, not at all. I am who I am, and God forged me in this moment to be able to take my next steps because I had to calibrate to him. And while that might have been painful, he said, there's zero loss in that. Think about uh, another one of our uh, people that have seen, uh, Michaela Moore, grew up wanting to be a vet. She started saving for vet school when she was in high school. She got to college. And as she began to move through college, she began to have this moment where she started calibrating her life. And as she began to calibrate her life, she began to recognize that she was being called to be sent out. And that didn't work with being able to be a vet and going to vet school. So she used that money that she'd saved to go to vet school to pay off 
her student loans so that she could go and be sent to a college campus to plant a church with her husband without having debt. This is this thing. If you were to ask Michaela, that, that process, that crucible of going through that allowed her to have the deepest peace of her life. I think about my, my friend Kevin. He's a farmer. And as he processes through how to operate his business and the chaos of the last few months for farmers around the globe and being able to say, what do I do in this? He began to recognize that his consuming capacity was growing faster than his generosity. And he began to say, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send container after container of grain to third world countries because it's easy for me to calibrate my life to all the people that are doing these kind of things, to be able to aggregate my wealth towards myself, to be able to think through the second home, to think through the bigger home, to think through the toys, the vacations, all that stuff. What I need to do is figure out how to calibrate to Christ. And as I talk to these people, there's never a sense of loss. There's a sense of joy. There's a sense of being able to have peace And over and over, these crucible moments, these moments that stretch us, that refine us, and this is what I get excited about when people say, I'm putting my yes on the table. I'm going to go out in this. It's not that Jesus promises, hey, after that, there's going to be tons of comfort in this. But what you get is you get the proximity to Christ that refines you and brings out his character in your life. And this is is what the good life is really all about. Over and over, when we begin to say, I'm gonna calibrate to the people around me, to the people on my street, to the friends that I have, what we begin to do is we actually cheat ourselves. Don't cheat yourself. I had a professor ask a class, who do you think is the most significant spiritual figure in the 20th century? And people raised their hand and said, maybe it's Billy Graham or, or Mother Teresa. And he said, I would, I would put forth Mao Zedong. We're like an atheist dictator in communist China. He said, yes, here's why. The things that he did created this movement in the underground Chinese church. I thought, maybe so. But it wasn't until a few years ago when I got to go to China and be able to to participate in this underground Chinese church. I remember I felt like I was like an undercover agent of some sorts. Like we're going through halls and into stairwells to get away from cameras. And finally, we go through all this stuff. And, uh, you, you know, I'm like half scared and half like absolutely thrilled. Um, it's just like this, this, this fascinating thing. And then I open this door and I open this door and in on the other side of this door is this Chinese underground church. And these people are some of the most joy-filled people and we worship together and it was, it was not flashy at all, but it was genuine and their, their worship was so, so transparent and authentic. I remember talking with them afterwards and to be able to hear their stories. The guy who was leading this church, um, he'd found Christ and uh, 
begin to follow him and begin to say, this is what I want to aim my life at. And it cost him his family, disowned by his family. All the connections that he made to be able to allow him to have uh, opportunities to work, they, were just, they just crumbled from, from that reality. I remember talking to this Chinese college student, this young lady who, who found Christ and, um, and it went against her parents' desires and she would articulate Every Sunday, they would lock her in her room. And after two weeks, she said, I I can't do this anymore. She jumps out of her window on the second floor. She she hurts her ankle, but she says, Jesus is worth it. I just want to get to this place. And they articulate something. And and what's fascinating, I asked them about this question. Do you, what do you think about this idea that Mao Zedong might have been the most significant figure in, in, in spirituality in the 20th century. And, th- and I said this, of course, if it was easy, the church wouldn't be in China what it is today. The difficulties have created the movement. And here's what I've experienced. Man, my mind is blown in this. That these people who look like they're in difficult places, as they calibrate their lives to Christ, are some of the most joy-filled people I've ever met in my life. And it's so crazy to me. Like It looks like this is so challenging for you. It looks like this is so demanding on you. How is it that you live your life and the world doesn't see it? And as we have college students that begin to say, hey, I'm going to transfer schools. I'm going to go to this place and help plant a church on another college campus. It doesn't make any sense, but I want you to understand that underneath that, there is deep peace. As we ask what the good life is, let us go back to Hebrews 11. Let us go back to this and be able to say maybe it's the fact that Jesus is trying to help us in a way that doesn't fit the categories of the world around us. And maybe there's decisions that you have to make and that decision won't look like it makes any sense to the world around you when you begin to align that to Christ. But over and over, what we begin to see is this allows us to experience a joy. So let me end with this. Verse 3, chapter 12. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's my hope for us. It's my hope for you. That there would be an endurance that we would be able to calibrate our lives to Christ. That there would be a sense of us being able to say, no more am I going to look to my peers. No more am I going to let my culture define this. And even if it doesn't make sense, I'm going to calibrate to Christ. And as we calibrate to Christ, what Jesus says is, I will transform you. I will make you into a new person, and the key is to remain in him. May that be who we are. May we be the people who seek endurance as we begin to align our lives to Jesus. May we see these things in our lives as not the pains, but the opportunities for Christ to be inserted into places that we need our brokenness to be healed. Let me pray for us.
God, I ask that in this place this morning, Lord, that you would take and you would allow a people to be forged here. And these people would be the same people that we see movements across the world align to. Lord, that that you would do something that would make this an uncommon group of people that don't look like the world around them, but look like you. And Lord, pray that that would bring an unspeakable joy as it has for 2,000 years, as the Christian church has put its focus on you. We ask that that would be the marker of this group of people. Lord, for the joy set before us, let us calibrate to your son, Jesus Christ. In your holy name, amen. We're going to sing this song and end out in response to the goodness of the Lord this morning. We're going to sing this song that the uh, the, the, kid, the students at Confluence actually were able to sing. Um, it's just full of doctrinal truth that God saved us, that He's made us to live for Him. And we can prepare our, prepare our lives to live with Him forever. So we're going to sing this together. Pray that you would catch on to the words. If you don't even want to sing the words, just listen. Just, then just listen. Let's respond. And God's goodness. In tenderness, he saw me. Weary and sick with sin. And on his shoulders brought me. Back to his fold